Welcome to the KKCL ELT podcast. This is a podcast for anyone interested in the world of English language teaching. I'm Phil Keegan, Director of Studies and Head of Teacher Training at Catherine and King's College of London. Episode 5, Learning Styles. The topic of this week's podcast is Learning Styles. Learning styles is something that's always made quite a bit of sense to me, but I'm far from an expert on it, so I thought I would call up an old friend, Marjorie Rosenberg. Marjorie has recently published Spotlight on Learning Styles, which is in the Delta Teacher Development series, which, by the way, is an excellent series. Marjorie is originally from New Jersey, but she's now based in Graz, Austria, where I used to live. Graz is a special place to me, apart from the fact that I spent 11 years there. It's also where I met my wife. Hey, Marjorie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Phil. Nice to be here. Uh, Congratulations on the new book. Well, thank you. Uh, You must also be terribly excited that you're the first American guest on the podcast. Oh, I didn't know that. But now that you've told me, yes, I can be excited about that. Sure. Your new book is about learning styles. So obviously, that's the topic we're going to talk about. Can you give me an idea of how you got into it in the first place? Well, I actually got into it with a quote that I have in the book, which I said, I never knew there were different styles of learning. I thought I just couldn't ever learn a foreign language. And that was my experience in high school with French. It was impossible. We had the audiolingual method. They told us, don't picture the words at all. The first time I saw Kesquise written, that was it. That was the end of my journey with French, three years of hating it. And then I came to Austria and slowly began to learn German carried a dictionary around with me for the first two years, looked upwards. People thought I was crazy in the middle of a bar looking upwards. And then must have been fairly early on after teaching for three or four years, I was told about learning styles and that there was something called the visual learner. Ah, the light bulb went on. And that was my problem with French. And I understood why I needed that dictionary in German. I'm very much an auditory learner. Mm -hmm. And when I was first teaching back in Germany in 1985, my students used to constantly complain to me that I didn't write words on the board. And the reason was, quite simply, that I don't need to see the word. I need to hear it. It was only when I first came across learning styles, and I think I'd been teaching for 15 years, that I suddenly understood why I didn't write the word. Because I'm an auditory learner, so I wasn't uh, catering to my visual learners. Well, that's one of the main things is to realize why students need different things. I'm assuming someone knows nothing or very little about the whole area of learning styles. Give us an outline of what it's really all about. Okay. Well, they are basically filters of how we take in, store, process information. And I went with three styles in the book. I started with the sensory-based, looking at the visual, auditory, and then dividing the kinesthetic into both motoric and emotional learners. So these are people that either need to to do something to learn, touch something, or to feel something. That's the sensory-based, which many people have heard about, the so-called VAK. 
The second step is what we call cognitive processing, and this is whether you are global or analytic. So a global learner will enjoy the discussions for the social aspect, and an analytic one may want drills. They, they want the rules to the grammar. This is also this difference between language discovery and going with the rules. So a global might want to practice saying a sentence and then find out later why that was right, whereas the analytic doesn't even make a step until they have the rule in front of them. Can you be a mixture of both? Big difference. Of course you can. And you can move back and forth. An example came up with a group of students who were studying to be primary school teachers. And most of them are very global. They love all of the, you know, the playing around with glue and paste and colors and drawing. And very few, very analytic students study to become primary school teachers, at least in Austria. And they had to do their registration at the college. And the secretary came in and she was very strict. And she was very angry with them because they came in two minutes after eight and she was tapping her watch. When she left, a group of them burst into tears. She was so mean to us. My one analytic student said, she was perfect. She gave me every bit of information I needed, and I don't care if she's friendly or not. When I've taught people on CELTA courses, uh, some of the best candidates are people who are former primary school teachers. Absolutely brilliant with uh, getting students to play games, to interact, yeah. to, to move around. Yeah, absolutely. But this very analytic style and this whole thing of if you can learn from somebody who likes you or doesn't like you, or if you have the feeling the person likes you, that's actually now moving into the third aspect of this book, which is something called mind organization. So the mind organization model that I use, which is a behavioral model, was developed by April Bowie in Seattle. This is a friend that I've worked a lot with in learning styles who unfortunately passed away several years ago. I got the permission to use her model in the book. She analyzed how we perceive information, if it's concrete or abstract, and abstract included feelings, and then how we organize it if it's systematic or non-systematic. And with that, she came up with four distinct styles. And this is more the behavior of students. This is very much part of, do I learn best from somebody that I like or I don't like? So one style, what she called the expert investigator, they just want the facts. They're perfectly fine with lots of e-learning, with lots of looking things up, whereas someone which she called a flexible friend needs to feel comfortable in the classroom, needs to like the teacher, needs to feel the teacher likes them, and so on. And it's fascinating watching the different behavior of students. Would you say there's any difference in the types of things that people study? I would say there is definitely a difference. In the model that April created, we had this expert investigator. For me, they are the people that write the handbooks, the, uh, the, the manuals that go with computers. Then she had what she called a power planner. These are engineers, but they like to have the practical aspect. They can be abstract thinkers, but they learn by doing. They will read the handbooks and apply it. Then you have the flexible friends who don't read the handbook, but they know somebody who has read it and that they can contact. I've got my hand up there. Okay. I'd never read a handbook. I think I'd, I think I'd rather get a rope and hang myself before I read okay. a handbook. Well, that's like me. And then there's the last one, which, she, which April called the radical reformers. They would burn the handbook. The only time they might turn it on is if they have pushed every single button on the DVD recorder and their favorite program is coming on and they cannot get it to work. And in desperation, they might actually open the handbook. But they generally will do everything they can to avoid it. Are there any differences between men and women that are consistent or is it quite random? I think it's quite random. 
Uh, I've done learning style surveys with a number of students and men come out as kinesthetic emotional as much as women do. I don't see a huge difference in this. There may be some difference from outside pressures. I mean, obviously men are not going to admit certain things in the way women will. And I absolutely think that it is spread throughout the styles. When you do a test of the sensory base, you do the visual, auditory, and the two kinesthetic, and then you ask people what they are, you get a large number of visual, you get a fairly large number of kinesthetics, and a small number of auditory. That's very interesting. So I'm in the minority again. I'm auditory, emotional, male, <laughs> flexible friend, whatever. You may very well be. Um, I did a presentation at IATEFL, and after each of the three models, people raised their hands to show what they were. And what they saw was that people come out with an individual profile that is, that's what makes them them. So you can be visual and abstract and flexible friend or auditory and global and flexible friend. The mixture is what then indicates what someone needs and how they learn. So it's much less pigeonholing than people think it is because it's so individual. Do you think it's important for a teacher or for a school to find out about their learners' learning styles? Well, the, the question is whether they have the time to do surveys about it. I think it's important to know that they exist and to accept students when they say, I need this, which is something that some teachers simply, they don't know enough about it to be able to do that. And we've been doing a research project at the University of Graz where I tested my students and gave them some learning tips. And that was very interesting just to see how the students reacted. Because what they said was, I've always done that, but I never knew that it was okay to do it. Do you get the opposite? I mean, I've had a lot of students who demand grammar lessons because that's all they know. That's what they had at school. When in actual fact, it's not always what they need. They do actually need discussion, kinesthetic activities, but they don't know. Exactly. And when you've done a learning style survey with them and they see, oh, I actually learn better when I walk around, which my mother told me not to do because then I was distracted. That's what, exactly what they said. Wow, that's, what, that's comfortable for me. And now I know I'm allowed to do it. So I do think that opening their minds up to the fact that they learn in a particular way can help them to understand why certain activities work better for them. I think for teachers, they need to realize that, that a mix of methods is the only way to do this. There is no way you're going to have a group that all learn exactly the same way. With me on the podcast today are podcast regulars Will Corner and Ollie Hipkins. Hello. Hello. And making her debut appearance on the KKCL ELT podcast our colleague Marta Gido Barreto. Hi, Phil. Let's talk a bit about ourselves in respect of what Marjorie has been saying. I already said I'm very auditory. I'm also, as a learner, and I think as a teacher, very kinesthetic emotional. The relationship for me is very, very important. And I also notice that when I have a problem, I really like to walk around or pace up and down. I mean, the moving around seems to help me think. What about you, Will? Well, I definitely think I'm visual, but also quite analytic. And that's probably why I like making websites and that sort of design uh, aspect of, of what I do. In the classroom, I think that translates to often doing a lot of work with sentences, sort of breaking them apart and coming up with different alternatives and, and exploring language like that. That's quite an analytical approach. But I, I can do some visual things as well in the classroom. So it's, it's a mix of those two for me. When you were learning Japanese, what helped you learn? 
Well, interestingly, uh, one of the ways that I tried to cram verbs into my head was I, I bought a book which sort of linked the Japanese words to images and pictures. And I found that that was really quite helpful. It was a little bit convoluted how everything sort of <laughs> translated. And sometimes the way that the picture worked, you'd have to think again to make sure you, you got the Japanese word right. But for memorizing those verbs, um, that was really helpful for me. And, and obviously, that was a very visual approach. I've sometimes found when I've been learning vocabulary in foreign languages that I make associations with actions and maybe to an extent pictures, though I'm not very visual. The one that just occurs to me is the Turkish word for onion, which is soan. And when I learnt this word, to remember it, I used to picture myself uh, sewing an onion to my clothes. But I, I would actually do the action of sewing it to my clothes. Probably looked a bit silly on the bus. What about you, Ollie? I am a very kinesthetic person. I learn by doing, and also I think I have a lot of teaching by doing. I always get students up, walking around, mingling, and visual as well. Lots of pictures uh, and lots of videos. I do think you win the award for noisiest classroom in the school. Few complaints. Yeah, floorboards, thin floorboards. Marta, what about you? Well, um, I normally get animated by sound and motion. Dance and theatre have been my great passions for many years. And therefore, I like to use drama techniques in my classrooms. I also always want to make sure that my students feel comfortable in the classroom. Therefore, I think probably I would consider myself to be a flexible friend. When it comes to decision making, I normally need a lot of background information. And that would mean that I'm an expert investigator as well. OK, let's go back to my interview with Marjorie. Could you give us an idea of some different types of activities that you can do in class to, to cater to these different learning styles? OK, one that is in the book, and I did at IATEFL, is called the statue. You get three or four students to come to the front of the room. One by one, they form a statue. And they are allowed to then add on to the statue so they can take a, a different pose. They can move someone around. And they create this living statue. And then you ask them to sit down. And then you say... What happened? And those kinesthetic kids say, well, he did this and she did that. And you say, okay, why are we using past tense? And I say, do you see the statue? Is it here? No, it's gone. And I just did this at the university. And one of my colleagues who teaches German said, oh, my God, now I finally understand that past tense in English is when it's completely finished. <laughs> and she felt it in her body because it was completely different than written on the board or explained. It's no longer there. It was there, but it's gone. And it was suddenly this revelation. Tell me something for me, an auditory activity. There's lots of things, of course, with, you know, partner dictation, jigsaw listening, uh, let me be your guide, where one person closes their eyes and the other one says, okay, now turn right, turn left, and they have to concentrate completely just by listening and to do what the person says. You're combining it a bit with kinesthetic, of course, but that is auditory. Let's see what else. Ah, secret identities. Yes, where you um, put the name of a person on someone's back and they have to ask questions. Did I live in the 19th century? Was I a woman? Was I a man? And they get all that information. And then they, must, they have to move on to the next person. They're allowed to ask three questions. And they have to repeat what they remember they heard. I lived in the 19th century. I was a man. I was famous because. And then they can ask more questions. But they have to keep it all in their mind 
only by listening. There's also one I learned from Andrew Wright, which he called soap opera, which I've changed a bit for the book. You have to think of some little thing that you did recently where something went wrong, like you forgot to buy milk for coffee. And you tell this to a person, you give them the card with your name on it. They take your story and they slightly change it and tell it to another person. So that person might say, Phil forgot to buy milk for his tea and he went to his neighbor. That person takes the story, tells it to another one, changes it slightly. Phil didn't have any milk for his tea, so he borrowed some from the local shop and so on. And at the end, the person who's last heard the story repeats it. And the people have to think about, is that my story? And by that time, it's gone through so many changes that it might be completely different. It's a variation on Chinese whispers, isn't it? It is, yes. Chinese whispers is another one that works very well. But this is where you're deliberately changing the story. And you could have them, for example, just change the verb. Instead of I, I bought milk, I borrowed milk, depending on the level of the group. I've done it with all kinds of levels, and they always love it. And it's a great deal of fun. I thought we could share a few of our ideas, how we cater to different learning styles. Um, Ollie? Well, I do an activity called writing... Uh, an email from picture prompts and what I do is collect about seven to ten pictures from Google um, beach scenes, hotel scenes, toilet scenes, uh, anything you can think of from a holiday and then put them together in a PowerPoint presentation and show each picture for about 10 seconds. Whilst you're showing the pictures, get the students to make notes but they must be just notes on exactly what they see. Um, For example, sandy beach, uh, lots of people, blue sky, dirty toilets, my favourite one. And then afterwards, when you've shown all of the pictures, encourage them to write an email or a postcard and tell their friend what happened. Well, as you said before, you like making websites and so on. You are sort of the resident nerd of the school. Thank you, Phil. (laughs) What's your activity? Well, yeah, it's a very analytical activity, but it is very, very low tech. Uh, It requires absolutely no resources at all. I often like to do it just uh, very randomly as well. Uh, So it's good as a warm-up activity, but uh, this could go on for a couple of hours if you wanted it to. And I call it the link game. And what we do is we pick a random word out of the dictionary uh, or a textbook, and then we take that word, and in groups or going around a class, we come up with loads of different questions using that word, try and formulate different sentences, and we look at the language that we come up with. So it's appropriate to different levels because depending what level you're teaching, those students will come up with certain types of question. And I like to often mind map this on the board so we get all the language up and connect it. And then when we've exhausted that word, we look at one of the branches of the mind map and maybe we've got a new word or a new concept. We take that and we do the same thing again. So it's very low resource and I would say that is quite analytical. I could imagine doing that actually all day. I think it would keep me happy for hours. Uh, I think I have. Marta, what about you? Well, um, I usually teach elementary students and I like to start with a physical warm-up. I get them to stand in a circle and um, I participate in this activity myself as well. So I give them um, verbal instructions and as well I, um, I like to model it myself. They might have difficulties with understanding the instructions. So they are very basic physical instructions such as, for example, bend your knees or um, lift your left hand, touch your nose, etc., etc. Whenever I do it, I always have the impression that my students haven't done any physical exercise for a long time time and it it makes them giggle and they absolutely enjoy it simple as it is it always works 
And you could take it a stage further too. You could start giving the control over to the students, and they give the instructions. Absolutely. An activity of mine that seems to hit all learning styles, although to be honest, I never planned it that way, is something I call the present perfect bridge. I draw two kind of little islands on the board, and I say one of them is called the past, and one's called the present. And there's no way of getting between the past and the present, but someone builds a bridge, and when the bridge is finished. They call it the present perfect, and if you want to get to the present from the past, you walk over the present perfect bridge. Now I draw this on the board, an actual bridge, and write present perfect on it. So I guess it's very visual. I am talking, of course, so it's auditory. But I also kind of like walk my fingers over the bridge, so that there's a kind of a kinesthetic, a visual kinesthetic element that people actually see and maybe even feel this person moving from the past to the present on this bridge called the present perfect. Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners about learning styles, Marjorie? Yes, I would like to say what they are not—sort of misconceptions. They are not designed to pigeonhole learners to say, "Well, you're visual, so that's all you can do. You'll never be able to use your auditory sense." That's not true. They're also not right or wrong. I've had students say, "Well, is this a good learning style?" There is no right or wrong learning style. That's what you are. And you make the best of what you are, and you can do wonderful things depending on how comfortable you are with your style. They're also not limiting. Just because I'm visual does not mean I cannot stretch out of my style. Style stretching is something that you can do once you know what you are. Then you have the opportunity to learn to take on the other aspects of learning. They're also not judgmental. There is no way that you can say, "Oh, well, he's just a visual type, so he's never going to be able to do that." That is not at all true. So I think these are very important aspects. And another thing, very important, they are not an excuse. It's interesting what you said before about stretching your style, because as I became aware that I was very emotional, very global, very auditory,、mm-hmm. I started to study chess because、okay. I thought this is something I can't have any real aptitude for at all.、Mm-hmm. So I got chess books. I started playing.、Wow. I joined clubs. I played in the Minnesota Open in 1992.、Oh. Would you believe? Wow! Where I lost to an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> Wasn't my finest moment as a chess player. What I was trying to do was im- improve my analytical thinking, but if you like my、yeah. logical thinking. But I discovered my best chess playing moments are when I play globally and with my feelings that I'm actually going in the right direction here, and it's the right thing to be aggressive here. It's the right thing to be defensive here. I don't really play that analytically, and when I do, I don't play very well. Interesting, but that is part of stretching. And the more you stretch, I mean,、uh, Michael Grinder, who I worked with, this is someone who came from NLP and went into learning styles for the classroom. He says the more places we store someplace, so if we have it in our visual memory, our auditory, and our kinesthetic, the more chances are that we can find it when we need the information. I think knowing about your learning styles is a gift. You begin to understand yourself. You are more tolerant of other people. You allow other people to do what they need to do, and you can try to meet them halfway. And you might take on some ideas from them. That's all part of stretching your style. And it's not just for for learning either. When I found out about it, it helped me understand myself as a whole. For example, I'm extraordinarily untidy, as anyone who's ever lived with me or now anyone who's seen my office at school knows. People in the past accused me of expecting them to tidy up after me, and that wasn't it at all. It was simply I I didn't and still don't see mess. I just don't see it. It doesn't disturb me. What disturbs me is is, is noise and smell. Another thing that's important is teachers tend to teach in the way we learn. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Absolutely. That's one thing I really had to unlearn mm-hmm. was always teaching to auditory kinesthetic learners. And I had to remember that probably a large number of my students are going to be visual. If I'm not visual, that's for me to do something about, not them. Right. That's the mix of methods. Absolutely necessary. And to take into account all of them and to try and do something for all of them if possible. Yeah, this has really made me think about how I teach in the classroom and when I think something's working. Because you could come up with a, a new way of teaching something which you think is really good. You go in the classroom and you, you're teaching it to the students and they seem to be getting it. And you think, oh, great, you know, I found a really good way to communicate this or to, to, to get this uh, language across. But uh, it might just be that you share the same kind of learning styles as the students that you're teaching. And you could have one or two students, if it's a big class, that you might neglect because they'll have slightly different learning styles. And uh, you won't notice because the majority of the class are, are really kind of getting into it. Yeah, that's true, Will. You know, I keep going on about my Spanish class, but um, I think it's really relevant because whenever we do group activities and it's more kinesthetic, I always come back feeling like I've done so much better than when we've just done paperwork. One final word from Marjorie. I'm also a a member of the membership committee for IATEFL, and we are starting a series of webinars, free, no pre-registration, and they are running once a month on a Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. UK time. Information is on the IATEFL website under webinars, and as soon as uh, speakers have confirmed titles and blurbs, this information will be there. You need nothing except a computer with internet access and speakers, and You are welcome to join us, log in. There's a chat box where you can communicate with others and with us during the webinar. And it's a wonderful opportunity to hear people from the field of ELC. Okay, well, that brings us to the... Oh, Phil, just one more thing, very important. Uh, You lost at chess to an eight-year-old girl. Actually, thinking back, she might have been nine. A nine-year-old girl. Yeah, well, it was my first big chess tournament, and uh, I'd never used a chess clock before, so I I was getting a bit flustered. A nine-year-old girl, Phil. Yeah, but as I said, I should shut up, shouldn't I? Yes. Okay, that really does bring us to the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. Many thanks indeed to Marjorie Rosenberg. All links and references will, as usual, be on our blog page. Until the next time, it's goodbye from all of us here at Catherine King's College of London. Goodbye. And in the meantime, enjoy teaching. You have been listening to the Catherine and King's College of London ELT podcast. The podcast was presented by Phil Kagan and produced by Will Corner and Oliver Hipkins. The music was composed and performed by Oliver Hipkins, Steve Munns and Phil Kagan.